0: Good morning everyone, and thank you for joining me this morning as we conclude the exciting series that we've been going through through the book of Colossians. The title of our series is Stronger to 7. But before we go any further, let's take a moment to recap all the things that we've learned up to this moment. We learn from the story of Colossians that Paul is writing the letter to the people of Colossae from a position of being imprisoned in Rome. He's writing to a people that are 1800 kilometers away. And in that great distance, Paul was already hearing troubling signs and concerns coming from that church. There was a very dangerous teaching being inserted into the teachings in that church that minimized who Jesus Christ really was. And because of this great concern, Paul is motivated to write to the people in Colossae, a very important word of correction for them to get them back on track. Though Paul had the greatest intentions and gravest seriousness in writing the letter, his letter comes across very warm and cordial, accepting, and above else, very encouraging. He begins right away in who Jesus Christ really is. Who is he? Is he just someone in history? Or is he something more than that? We find out from Paul as he writes to the church that Jesus Christ himself is the very essence of the invisible God. He is God. And everything that there is in the universe has been created by him and for him. He's not some personality that has lived in history. He is God himself. Jesus Christ has the supremacy in all the physical universe all around us. But for the heart of the believer, he has more significance even than that, if you can imagine. The Bible makes it very clear that men and people, and men and women, we are all alienated from God himself because of the poor choices that we make in our decisions from day to day. The moral misgivings, the hateful things that we do, all those things alienate us from a perfectly pure God. And there's nothing we can do to change that. No amount of religious practice, nothing we can do to change that. But Jesus Christ, who is God himself, came down in a form of a baby to become exactly like us, to die physically on the cross in our place, taking away our sins, suffering the death penalty that we deserve, and was raised from the dead in a new life so that you and I are no longer alienated from God, but rather now we are made holy and perfect and clean and acceptable in God's sight. Paul goes on to say these are marvelous words, that we're free from blame and accusation. Those are powerful words. Jesus Christ makes it possible that we can be clean and pure and acceptable to the one who made everything in the universe because he loves us and by simply accepting him in our hearts, we are made right before God. Jesus Christ does not have only the supremacy in the universe. He has supremacy in the heart of an individual that receives him in their lives. And because of that supremacy, why would we not want to anchor in deeper and deeper and deeper into the love of Jesus Christ? This is the theme verse that we have shared over and over and is worth mentioning again. Let your roots go down in him. Let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught. And you will overcome, you will overflow with thanksgiving. Paul goes on to say quickly that, he goes, if this is the case, why are you getting lost in religiosity and thinking that your faith with God has something to do with everything you could possibly do? There's nothing we can do to add or supplement to the grace that Jesus Christ has already given us. Because all those religious actions, it may seem pious and great to people but the fact is they're all external. They have nothing to do with changing the inner heart. The problem with being religious is that it's an attempt that we make to change ourselves from the outside in. It's completely wrong. It's the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the supremacy of Christ in the willing heart that receives Jesus Christ into their lives that they get changed from the inside out. Completely different. Paul was making this point clear, so that when we receive Christ in our lives, we are transformed. We let go of the things that destroy us and our relationships. The hate, the bitterness, the strife, the lying, the cheating, the sexual immorality, all the things that are evil, greed, all the things that actually corrupt us from the inside and affect us negatively, not only in this life, but in the life to come and everyone that we hold dear around us. Rather. Paul says that we've died with Christ to all these things that actually are destroying us and now we can put on the new self that is made more like the character of Jesus Christ himself. That is kindness, gentleness and mercy and the ability to forgive and love one another. The supremacy of Christ is so complete and so total that it actually affects everything else around us, not just the inside. You can't keep it inside. It will have a positive impact on your relationships with your marriage and with your children and your coworkers. The supremacy of Christ, when we take it in all the way through into who we really are, really transforms everything that we touch in our lives. And he says this in chapter three, verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. And with that being said, we now come to the concluding remarks of Paul and the content of our message. Colossians 4, verse 2, we begin reading, and please listen along. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about the ministry and the mystery plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. I pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response For everyone, Titicus will give us will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He is a beloved beloved brother and faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I am sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your very own. He and Titicus will tell you everything that is happening here. Aristarchus, who is imprisoned with me, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Jesus, who we call Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jews, Jewish believers among my co-workers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God and what a comfort they have been. Ephorus, a member of your own fellowship and servant of Christ, Jesus sends his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you stronger and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Heropolis. the beloved doctor sends his greetings, as does Demas. Please give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nymphia and the church that meets in her house. After you have read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter I wrote to them. And say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. Here is my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul, remember my chains, may God's grace be with you. And with that, we've completely read through the book of Colossians together in this series. But in this portion of scripture here, we see three things that we can highlight. The first one is the importance of prayer. Secondly, an opportunity of a lifetime. And three, the importance of Christian fellowship and love amongst the believers. Let's begin with point number one, being devoted to prayer. Think about it this way. Paul speaks about praying, but he's not talking about being religious about it. He's talking about doing it with a sharp mind and with thankfulness. If we're praying religiously, thinking that we're saved because we pray, we're just doing something repetitive and it just sort of sits on the surface and we're probably not even thinking about it. But when we know we've been saved because of Jesus Christ and we're talking to him in prayer, we know he's listening to us. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So when we come into prayer, we're coming into the audience to the king of the universe who loves you. And when you're speaking to him, you better believe it. He's listening to you. That's how important you are. It's different. Praying religiously and praying in relationship are a universe apart. And Paul is telling us, hey, pray. Spend time with the Lord. Remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about being rooted in Christ. How can we possibly know Christ more if we never talk to him? Of course, a part of the process of us being rooted in Him and the supremacy that He has in our lives, let's spend time with Him. Let's be committed to Him, not religiously, but because we want to, because we know He hears us and He answers our prayers because we call on His name. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Paul is underlining this here for us. As in any relationship, it takes time and effort and commitment. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I struggle in praying, but it does take concentrated effort. And what a reward it is. It is probably the most beneficial thing that we can do on every given day. And Paul is encouraging us to be devoted to the importance of the one who actually hears us, the creator of the universe, who also happened to be the one who loves you so much that he died for you so you can have a relationship with him. It doesn't get much better than that. But Paul is talking about here not only praying to God about our lives, he's talking about us also praying for other people, for interceding. In this case, Paul saying, hey, I need you to pray for me too here while I'm in prison. But interestingly, Paul is not praying about being released from prison or being set free. He's asking the church to pray for him that he can make good on the opportunity he has in sharing the good news gospel with Christ even in prison. He doesn't even see the change he has. In fact, I kind of see Paul like as if he's like a, a, a young hockey player or a football player who's just sitting there just before the game is about to start. He's in the back room, he's in the locker room, and they're just about to go back onto the ice. They're just about to go back onto the playing field. And it's just about to, the game is just about to start and your knees are bouncing because you're just so hyped up and you're all pumped up and ready to get going to the game. Paul is like this, he's just saying, help me Pray with me that I make good on the opportunity when I speak to the guards and the people who visit me and ultimately when I speak to Caesar himself in my appeal that I bring the gospel message to every person I meet, great or small. How powerful is that Paul has eternity in focus. And with Paul's encouragement for the church to pray for him, it leaks onto point number two. Paul didn't see just only himself having opportunity. He sees you and I having the same opportunity, an opportunity of a lifetime, an opportunity today. When we have the supremacy of Christ in our lives, it doesn't just simply change us, we get a new sense of purpose, and we're doing an important thing for God every single day that can echo for all eternity. That's right, every person that we meet, every single day, whether it's at work, or at play, or at school, Or in a grocery store or your barber wherever it is you have an opportunity to potentially have a positive impact in our lives for the cause and grace of Christ in the words you say and how you respond to them and hopefully at some point an opportunity to share your own personal testimony with them realize it's not our job to see people come to Christ the Holy Spirit does that All that we're supposed to be is ourselves and to be a witness. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be a preacher. All you have to be is just yourself, and that's good enough. I like what Pastor Joel said earlier. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And with Christ in our lives, the little that we do has a great impact for the kingdom of God. You have an opportunity of a lifetime every single day and Paul says capitalize on it, don't let it lose, you don't lose it out of your hands. Years ago, uh, Laura and I were in ministry in Toronto in a small church called Wardenful Gospel and I remember a, a particular meeting I had with one of our young adult guys, I'll never forget it. He said to me, Harv, I've got eight tickets to the fifth game of the World Series. Do you and Laura want to come? What? Harv, I have eight tickets to game number five of the World Series between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Atlanta Braves. Game number five, do you want to come? I'm like, are you serious? I couldn't believe it. I like, Pinch me. I have an opportunity to go to game number five of the World Series? It's not just any game. This is game number five. This is October 1992, and the Blue Jays are ahead three games to one. If they win game number five, we will be able to see with our own eyes something that has never happened in the history of the universe, that the World Series is won by a Canadian team on Canadian soil. It doesn't get any better than that. I immediately said yes. I didn't care about the price. I didn't care where we're sitting we got an opportunity to go. And when we were there at that game, I want to tell you something. It was like no other baseball game that it had been before. Every single eye, pair of eyes in that place was completely transfixed on every single pitch. 60,000 pairs of eyes looking at every pitch because every single pitch counted. Every single swing could literally create history before our very eyes. It wasn't just any game. It was game number five in Toronto in the World Series. Interesting enough, as a major letdown as game number five Toronto lost, but they did win game number six in Atlanta and became the world champions in 1992. But the important point is when we reflect back on what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that we simply are a similar situation as what it would be like in the World Series. What I can see and what Paul is saying is that it's like you coming up to bat every single day for an opportunity of a lifetime to make history for all eternity. Every single time we have an encounter with someone, it matters. Blink and the opportunity is gone because it comes at you at 92 miles an hour. That's why we need to be prompt and ready with every opportunity. My friends, I would ask you and pray and realize that you have an opportunity today to do a positive change in someone's life for the kingdom of God. It's such a powerful thing to me that that is our title for a message that we have here today, an opportunity of a lifetime. First, again, we have the importance of connecting with God in prayer to the opportunity of a lifetime. And now next, the examples of true Christian friendship. When we read those last comments there, there nine people that Paul mentions by name and there are names that probably mean nothing to us because after all it's a a culture that is alien to us. It's 2,000 years ago and on the other side of the world. What possible benefit can we get from hearing these names? It would have been obviously a big benefit for the people who were actually initially addressed by the letter, but thankfully with a little bit of study, we can gain a better, meaningful appreciation of what is going on here behind these names and the stories of their lives. We find a story of grace and mercy and reconciliation and the power of God working in believers as they can trust each other with their lives. There's nine people, but we're only going to focus on four. And the first one is Titicus. Who is Titicus? Well, we find out that he had been with Paul already for many, many years. Back in Acts chapter 20, we find out that Titicus is a part of a small group of companions of Paul that have followed him into Jerusalem on his last visit back home. It was there in Jerusalem that Paul was incarcerated and arrested and put in jail in carceria for a period of at least two years. And once his appeal went through that he could have his court hearing in front of Caesar himself, he went on a journey from Carceria to Rome that was fateful because the actual trip ended up in a tragic shipwreck. Miraculously, every single person was saved because of Paul. And later, he does eventually make it to Rome where he is incarcerated in home arrest. And all the way through that, Titus is there. Titus is a guy that Paul could rely on. He was just an ordinary, common person like you and me. In fact, Titicus followed Paul in the ministry his entire life. Years later, when Paul writes the book of Second Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, we find that Paul favored bringing Titicus into the situation as his favorite substitute apostle. When Paul wanted to have Timothy come and visit him before he died, he sent to take over those epistolic ministries in Ephesus so that Timothy could be free to come back. It's very likely that the same thing occurred for Titus in a different situation. Titus was a faithful servant of the Lord and someone that Paul could trust. He wasn't flashy. He wasn't a guy that always took center stage. But he was faithful. He really is the unsung hero of faith. And Paul didn't just trust him with this; he also trusted him with many other things. The letter that he writes to the people of Colossians, you know, Colossae, he entrusted it to no one else, other than Titus, along with the letter to the lady Laodiceans, as well as a letter that he had written for the church in Ephesus. And we can find those remarks in Ephesians chapter six. Paul trusted Titus because he was faithful, and because he was trustworthy. My friends in the life of the church i want to tell you something we don't just go to church and listen to messages we make our friendships and our bonds there they're not meant to be for a week or two they're meant to be for a lifetime these are the friendships that we forge with fellow believers that in times of crisis these are the people that we can rely on that we become tied to kisses to the people around us and that we share in the burden in the ministry of the gospel in our community and in our church and in the world around us. And when we fall, who is there? I hope that there are kisses in my life that can be there to pick me up and that I can be a kiss to someone else too. You don't have to be a rocket scientist or a, or a rock star. You can just be yourself and be faithful. And love is expressed not always in the big shiny things, but in the day-to-day things, of being faithful in the small things. Jesus says, you will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love is marked with faithfulness and trustworthiness. This is Titus. Titus had three letters with him, but he actually had a fourth one. And it was accompanying him because he had someone else with him on his way back to the church of Colossae with the letter that he had in hand. And he's dealing with a person named Onesimus Who is Onesimus? Well, we find out that Onesimus is a servant of Philemon, a rich man who lives in Colossae. Philemon, or I should say Onesimus, was a servant but he wronged his master and he did something wrong, probably stole from him and he fled from him. And he eventually found Paul in Rome where where Paul leads Onesimus to Jesus Christ. And in that situation, Anissimus himself, his life was beautifully transformed. He was not the same person. He fled Anissimus as a thief and someone who was unfaithful. And we find him now in Rome and his life is changed. When we're talking about servitude, it, it's something that is repugnant to us and it's, it's hard for us to even get our minds around it. But it is something that we have to take in the context of its time. And I would encourage you to reflect back on the message that was shared last week by Pastor Marl. He did an excellent, simply an excellent job of bringing the whole context, the historical context and the background in the culture of the time of what servitude was at that time. I would ask you to do that because it gives you a better appreciation of what's going on here in a life of Onesimus. Onesimus was someone that Paul really enjoyed he wanted to keep him with him because his life was so transformed I believe Paul thought he had the call of ministry on his life but Paul realized that there was a more important mission for Nissimus to have and that was to go back home and be reconciled to Philemon with Titus at his side but Titus didn't come empty-handed he had three letters to the churches but he also had a fourth one a private letter that he put into the hand of Philemon himself. Philemon was a Christian believer and it is believed that it was in Philemon's house that the church of Colossae met. So what was going on here though it was private it was pretty clear everybody kind of knew what was going on. The letter that Paul writes to Philemon is a very short personal letter but it is very powerful because it does three things. First of all it is a character reference letter about the changed life of Onesimus. He was trying to encourage Philemon that Titus bringing Onesimus back to him he's not the same Onesimus that fled from him and then he told him to remind him just to be cautious about you're not looking at the same person that left you. Secondly, the important thing is the letter actually is a binding legal financial document. It is a promissory note written by the Apostle Paul's hand himself promising Philemon, that he would pay whatever outstanding debt there was, every red cent of it, on Onesimus's behalf so that he could be cleared of any financial responsibility back to Philemon. How powerful is that? And third, and perhaps the most important thing, the letter that Paul writes to Philemon is an appeal to emancipation. He's calling on and encouraging gently, suggesting to Philemon to let Onesimus free to no longer have him as a slave. Paul suggests to him, he goes, if you release him as a slave, yes, you will lose a servant, but you'll gain something even better, a fellow servant and brother in Jesus Christ. Apparently Philemon listened, and Onesimus was restored. He was forgiven. They reconciled, and Philemon set him free from slavery. The impact of that in that church in a culture that day, that was unheard of. That would have been big, big news. An actual servant is released from his bonds out of just a sake of mercy and love? How can that possibly be? That letter would have been circulated over and over and over. The story would have gone far and wide. It was big news. In fact, it's so big that actually, if you flip over a couple pages in the Bible, you'll find that letter of Philemon there for us. In the New Testament. The impact of this moment of reconciliation has echoed throughout the history as it has been perhaps one of the major cornerstones of slavery being taken care of and put it to the side in the Western world in the 18th century or 19th century, as well as the work of Martin Luther King, even in the 20th century, in social reforms, because we're all made equal in the sight of God. And the Philemon story and Onesimus story anchors that so deep. I want to tell you something, friends. As believers, we are called to a life of reconciliation, not with only with God, but with every other person, superseding social boundaries and economic barriers. We have equality with one another, and how powerful is that? My friends, does somebody owe you something? Do you need to set someone free in your heart? Forgive them reconcile to them and if you have offended someone have the courage of Onesimus to face those challenges and those fears and come back to that person and confess and say I'm sorry and I have changed they will know you are one of my disciples if you have love for one another. Titus, Onesimus and then there is Mark, the third person we want to mention. The story of reconciliation doesn't end there It actually continues on through the life of Mark, but in this case, the offended person is the Apostle Paul himself. That's right, Paul was not immune to being ripped off by other people, and Mark did this to him years before. Paul and Barnabas in the earlier years did ministry together, and Barnabas brought his cousin along, Mark, to help along. When they were traveling together, it wasn't just to have fun and fellowship. They actually worked together and depended on each other. Mark abandoned them, actually completely, if I can say, shafted Paul and Barnabas. It was a major betrayal and Paul didn't let it go. Sometime later when they were back in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas were going to consider doing another missionary tour, Barnabas comes up with this great idea, hey, Paul, let's bring Mark, back with us. Let him come with us back on ministry. And Paul the pragmatic said, No, because he ripped us off once, he'll do it again. We're not taking him with us. The work that we have to do is just simply too important to take that risk. Barnabas goes, Come on, it's not such a big deal. Let's bring Mark along. Paul refuses. Barnabas insists until they have such a big fight about it that they actually part company. Barnabas takes Mark and Paul takes somebody else, and they go completely different directions because Paul would have nothing to do with Mark in ministry. And yet, throughout those years, somehow in an unwritten um, history, we find that something has marvelously changed. The person that Paul wanted nothing to do with has now become a co-worker with him and one of the few people that he finds comfort with. Paul, somewhere down the line, wasn't just simply reconciled to Mark. He had regained back all his confidence in him at two. That can only come by giving someone a second chance. The power of reconciliation doesn't just stop in just having peace with people. It's actually bringing people back into the inner circle of your life and allowing them the opportunity to gain back that trust. It's a risk to give people a second chance. But I thank God that He has given me many second chances in my life and I know that's true for you too. We need to do that for each other. I was touched by a, a second chance that I had with my dad. I, I broke my dad's confidence really bad once when I was uh, maybe 16 or 17 years old and it really hurt my dad's heart really bad. And I remember feeling awful about it, and with all my heart, I said, Dad, I'm sorry for breaking your confidence. My dad was a gentleman, and with pain in his eyes, he said, Harvey, I love you, and I forgive you, but I'll be honest with you. I don't trust you. I can't. It's not like I don't want to, but I don't know what. when you say things to me if they're actually true anymore. What point of reference do I have? How can I verify that? And he said something after that. He says, but you know what? Let's take a chance and work on it together. I can't make that confidence come back, but let's work on it and allow me the time to see that confidence be restored with you with time. You know what my dad did? It was a painful couple of months, but before you know it, my dad stopped asking me questions anymore and I was back inside the inner circle of my dad's confidence. It could never have happened if my dad didn't give me a second chance. We need to give each other second chances inner points of reconciliation. They will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And part of that love is giving people a second chance. This is good. Last person we want to talk about here is Ephorus. Who is Ephraim? Well, he's actually the real apostle to the people of Colossae. Paul sent Ephorus originally to the city to share Christ in a city that never heard about Christ before. And it was there that Ephorus led many people to Christ and actually started the church that was meeting in Philemon's home. He was actually the real apostle there. But now he was back with Paul in Rome. But interesting, Ephorus never really left the church. He wasn't there physically, But he was there in his mind. He was there in prayer. Paul says, I can attest to him that he's working for you hard in prayer. He never stops thinking about you. He never stops praying for you. He's never giving up on you, confident that you are faithful to the service of the Lord. Ephraim never gave up on the church. Never. He kept being persistent in his hope and his commitment and in his love for the church. How relevant is that for us today in this COVID environment where we are separated from each other so often by what is going on, even in the life of the church? Do not give up in your heart with your fellow believers here and anywhere else. Keep praying for each other. This COVID season will go away someday, and we need to be prepared and ready to come back when it is safe for us to meet again. But in the meantime, let's not give up. On each other, praying for each other, reaching out to each other, even if it's remote at this point in time, because you are important. The body of believers are important. The supremacy of Christ in our lives makes it possible for us to reconcile, give second chances, and not give up, and be faithful and trustworthy. All the important ingredients that we need to have to have true love for one another. That complete, concludes our, our entire series here at this moment and I can't help but thinking in these final moments right now the importance for us that we need to have in being reconciled not to each other but also to God himself. If you've never considered having Jesus Christ in your life I would encourage you today to do that. He loves you, he's died for you, and he wants to have a relationship with you here and now. This is your opportunity for a lifetime, to find the transforming work of Christ in your life, affecting you from the inside out and touching everything in your life. And if you feel that call in your heart and that desire to reach out to Jesus and say, Lord, I want you in my life. I want this transforming work in my life. I want it to be not only for here, but for all eternity at your side. If that's your desire, I want you to join with me in this simple prayer and let it be your prayer as we pray in our conclusion. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you for your promises that you've given that I'm actually important to you. Lord Jesus, I want to receive you in my life right now. Forgive me of all the things I've done wrong and receive me and transform me from the inside out. I know that nothing else can, but I know that you can do it Please come into my life and do that work that you've done with the people in the book of Colossians. May that be my story too. We pray this and I ask you for it and I receive it now with thanksgiving that you're in my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer and you've meant that in your heart and you believe in your heart that Jesus is in your heart today and you ask for forgiveness, way to go. You are a part of God's family right here and right now. I would encourage you to reach out back to the church or someone else you know and tell them about that and let us know about that. We would love to hear that from you. God bless you, everyone, and have a great day.